Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big coronavirus stories this week that was calling into question how long people are immune after being infected with COVID-19 was the story of a 25-year-old man in Nevada who was the first American confirmed to have been infected twice with coronavirus. We know this is a reinfection because the virus was genetically different the second time around. For more on this and some more news on vaccines and other therapeutics, we'll speak to Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. He's the first one who's been studied. There's been a case report about him. I have gotten at least 20 emails overnight of people saying that they have been reinfected or they know people who have been. So it's not a brand new phenomenon, but this is the first time somebody has detailed it. And basically, he was a seemingly perfectly healthy 25-year-old guy. He is an essential worker. I couldn't get any more detail than that. But he caught the infection on the job. There was an outbreak where he worked, and that was back in March. He went home. He was sick for like a month, and then he had tested positive early on. Then he tested negative. He was still in isolation. He was still at home. He hadn't tested negative twice. About a month after, five weeks after he tested negative the first time, he was feeling ill again. A family member, also an essential worker, had been exposed at work. The man still hadn't left his house in all of that time, but he was exposed again at home and infected again. Now, the weird thing about this is that the second time around, the infection actually seemed to be worse. We have heard about reinfections before, and I think the reports were that the second time of, of infection wasn't as bad as the first time, but in this case, it was worse. You know, he had sore throat, cough, headache, nausea. He had diarrhea. The second time around, his oxygen levels were low, so they had to hospitalize him and give him oxygen. Right. He had pneumonia the second time, so he was quite sick. And that's bad news for all of us, actually, because the hope had been that After you got it once, your body was sensitized to it. If you got it again, it would be a minor infection, be a a common cold. In fact, several of the common cold viruses that we get every winter, our coronaviruses are similar to this one. And the thought was that those were originally dangerous, but our bodies had gotten used to them. The fact that this guy and a few others have had it worse the second time, it could be just some fluke about their immune system, or it could be that something different is happening this time. We just don't know yet. And one of the reasons why we know this is a reinfection is because the genetic material of the virus was different. It was two different strains, they were saying. Right. What they found, they were able to genetically sequence both of the viruses that he had, and they were not similar enough. So it couldn't have just been one virus that evolved in his body and changed a little bit over those two months. He was definitely reinfected. Now, this also raises question about immunity, long-term immunity, as you were kind of mentioning right there. This also has implications for vaccines, but some of the public health experts say that the immunity or the benefits from a vaccine are a little different from getting the virus naturally and getting over it. The hope is that a vaccine will be more protective, actually, than a natural infection because it's stronger, because it's directed at the immune system. Hopefully, it will be longer lasting and more powerful. We don't know that yet, though. Tell me a little bit about what we know about some of the other reinfection cases. From my understanding, I've seen a bunch in other countries, Belgium, Netherlands, Hong Kong, Ecuador. What do we know about those? The one I know the most about is the one in Hong Kong where it was somebody who'd gotten ill early in the pandemic, got better, was healthy enough to be traveling 
I think to Europe, came back to Hong Kong and was tested just because everybody entering the country is tested. He didn't know he was infected again, but he tested positive. So in that case, the second infection was much milder. He had no idea he was sick or was exposed. So again, that gave people hope that a second infection would be milder. Karen, you've been following you know, a lot of COVID-19 news. We're also hearing about two clinical trials that have been paused. The first one was Johnson and & Johnson and their vaccine candidate. But we're also hearing that Eli Lilly, who had one of those monoclonal antibody treatments similar to the one that the president took. I think the one the president took was from Regeneron. But Eli Lilly and, and Johnson and & Johnson both paused their clinical trials because participants had gotten sick. What do we know about those? We know very few details. They're not releasing details about what happened to the people, but we do know that they were serious enough to pause the trials. And companies do this. Actually, they have an independent data safety monitoring board. And when there are concerns raised about safety in a trial, the data safety monitoring board can say, hey, let's put this on hold for a little while. And that's what they've done in both of these cases last night and today. We don't know how long they will last. It's possible that the people who got them had received a placebo and not the active vaccine. And once that's figured out, then probably the hold would be lifted very quickly. But if it's potentially connected to the vaccine, uh, it could be a, a longer hold. There was also a hold put on the AstraZeneca vaccine candidate. I think that one's still pending right now. So it could have the potential to be on hold for some time, for some weeks at least. That one's been on hold since September 8th, I believe. And that hold was lifted in Britain where the patient who'd gotten sick, she is a UK citizen, and they lifted the hold, but the FDA here in the US has kept the hold in place so for the last month on the AstraZeneca trial here. It's very interesting because a lot of people are putting a lot of hopes into getting a vaccine. We know we have Operation Warp Speed, which is helping to fast track a lot of this stuff. But people got to keep in mind that there's tons of therapeutics, vaccines, whatever, that go through these clinical trials. And a lot of them do end up failing in the phase three clinical trials, the last phase before you can apply for authorization. So there's still a lot yet to be studied about a lot of these therapeutics. Absolutely true. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the big political stories this week, the New York Post published what it called smoking gun emails, revealing how Hunter Biden introduced a Ukrainian businessman tied to Burisma to his father, Joe Biden. The emails were obtained from a laptop left at a computer repair shop in Delaware, whose contents were later shared with Rudy Giuliani and then the New York Post. While they called it a smoking gun, the story was met with skepticism by a lot of outlets. For more on what we know about this, we'll speak to Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of Washington Post Fact Checker. It's really strange tales. I mean, supposedly Hunter Biden or someone that looked like Hunter Biden dropped off a laptop to be repaired, didn't pick it up. The owner of the store then looked into the hard drive and decided he saw interesting stuff in there. He gave it to the FBI. But he also kept a copy for himself, which he then gave to Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer. But we at The Washington Post have not been able to actually examine the hard drive and verify whether these emails that The New York Post talks about are in any way correct or if they've been manipulated or if they're Russian disinformation or anything like that. And the Biden campaign has said that they checked Joe Biden's schedule surrounding that time and surrounding the email and right in the time that the email said, hey, thanks for introducing me to your father and all that. They said that there was never such a meeting between Joe Biden and the person uh, tied to Burisma in the emails. They said that there was never any meeting that occurred that day. Or in that period. The email says 
Thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving an opportunity to meet your father. It's unclear if he's talking about he had the meeting or he was hoping to have the meeting. I spoke to the chief foreign policy advisor for the vice president at the time who said he was in every meeting that the vice president had in Ukraine. He said there was no such meeting with this guy. And that was also affirmed by two other people I spoke to who worked for Biden or were in the Obama administration working on Ukraine issues. But that doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been a moment where Hunter may have been standing there with the guy at a public function and said, hey, Dad, I want you to introduce you to Victor here. And they shook hands. When I did have the Biden people check his schedule, I mean, he had a couple of public events the night before, like a Greek Independence Day reception, and then he spoke at some sort of congressional gala. So you could see possibly something like that happening, but it's the kind of thing that happens all the time in Washington. They said there was also videos, a bunch of pictures of Hunter Biden in a bunch of compromising situations. They show him doing drugs, things like that. I think the Post posted some of those pictures. I mean, it's just a weird thing. <laughs> if Hunter Biden dropped it off, he wouldn't get it back because of the sensitivity of, of all that. Just to back up for a minute, how many people drop off a laptop and then never come back to pick it up? Right, exactly. That's a little strange. And this happened supposedly in spring of 2019. And this is when, just at the moment that Giuliani and the Russians that he had been working with and the Ukrainians were spreading this stuff about Hunter Biden. So let's not put it past of this being some sort of concocted hacked material that was put into this laptop. The Post or Rudy Giuliani have not made this available to others to authenticate. But in the article, you talk about how the New York Post just kind of published PDF printouts of this or a photo made of the email. There's no metadata attached to this, no headers on this. So it makes it that much more difficult for other people to authenticate, to believe it, let's say. Exactly. And that was one of the strange things about the article is that they did print some emails where you could see metadata, but not the so-called smoking gun email. That was just a photograph of an email. One of the other interesting things surrounding all of this, I think, is how Facebook and Twitter responded to this right away. They tried to limit the spread of this article, I guess, while they were trying to authenticate this also, but they weren't letting it float around so widely as, you know, anything else, really. Well, I think everyone has learned a bit of a lesson from four years ago and where there was lots of stuff doled out by WikiLeaks. There was hacked material. And some of it, when you investigated it afterwards, the spin that was put on it was completely false. So, for instance, there was a one of the WikiLeaks emails was pitched as saying that Hillary Clinton had used Clinton Foundation funds to pay for her daughter's wedding. When I investigated it, it turned out it was completely false. So we at the Washington Post have set up some pretty strict guidelines for how you treat this material in the final weeks before an election. You have to just be much more careful about it because you don't want the news organization to be manipulated by someone trying to swing the election with something that could well turn out to be fake. And I'm wondering how much weight this really holds. Were reports already of millions of people that have already cast their ballots through early voting, really just kind of wondering where this takes us? Well, that's a good question. I think that for people who are supporting Biden or are against Trump, another story about Hunter Biden possibly somehow cashing in on his prestige of his father, that's a bit of an old story. And particularly when you measure it against what the Trump family 
has done in terms of cashing in on the presidency and things like that. The carefully reported and documented stories that have appeared in the Washington Post and the New York Times. So for those people, they're not, it's not going to mean much. For people who are Trump supporters who have cared avidly about this story, it will confirm what they already believed, but they were going to vote for Trump anyway. And in fact, most polls indicate there are few people on the fence or undecided. And I'm not sure this kind of story is something that would swing someone one way or the other. You know, it doesn't rank very high in the polls. What people seem to care about is what's going to happen with the economy and how soon will the pandemic be over. Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of Washington Post Fact Checker. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Another story that surfaced this week, the federal prosecutor appointed by Attorney General Bill Barr to review unmasking requests by Obama administration officials has completed his work and found no substantive wrongdoing. U.S. Attorney John Bash provided no criminal charges, no public report, and also left the department just last week. For more on this story, we'll speak to Matt Zapatosky, reporter at The Washington Post, and we start off by talking about just what unmasking is. Unmasking is when a government official gets some kind of sensitive intelligence document and there are references to U.S. people. Oftentimes, those references are masked or redacted. So instead of seeing a name like Matt Zapatosky, you might see U.S. Person 1 or Reporter 1, and they do that to protect people's privacy, even inside the government, right? But if I'm a government official reading that, I might want to know who that is so I understand this intelligence product better. So I would make a request to unmask that name. So instead of saying Reporter One, it would say Washington Post reporter Matt Zapatosky. It's a very common practice. The name unmasking kind of has this seedy undertone, like you're you <laughs> right. know, revealing someone, exposing someone out in the world, but it's really not that. It's just revealing something internally in the government so you understand it better. So John Bash, this U.S. attorney, is tasked with investigating this practice because it was used a lot during the Obama administration. Again, nothing untoward about that necessarily, but Republicans were concerned because some requests were made to unmask names and they turned out to unmask names of people associated with President Trump, particularly former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. This generates some outrage among conservatives. John Bash explores this. He ultimately finds, as you said, no substantive wrongdoing. I have to say I haven't read his full findings or report, so people should know that, but people who are familiar with his work have described it and says it just doesn't live up to these conservative expectations of some grand conspiracy to, you know, and that it wouldn't even be a conspiracy on mass because there's nothing wrong with that, but to unmask names and do something improper beyond that. And that's one of the interesting parts of it is that there was no public report made about this. He released the report, gave it to Bill Barr. That's pretty much the end of it. And then U.S. Attorney John Bash left the department last week. So really doesn't seem like we're going to hear any more about this. At least for now, the department has made the decision to just not say anything, not release a public report, not even release an official statement saying this investigation is over and we found no wrongdoing. And as you mentioned, John Bash left the department. His last day was on Friday. He had told the attorney general about a month ago, right around the time this wrapped up, that he was going to leave. So it doesn't seem like, at least in the short term, we're going to hear about anything more about what he found, at least through official channels. But certainly at the Washington Post, we're going to continue to report and see what more we can learn about what he found beyond that sort of top line conclusion. President Trump has been talking about this for quite some time, saying, you know, there's a lot of wrongdoing in the Obama administration because of this. 
this report doesn't really fit into that part of the narrative. Why else would we not be seeing some type of public report on this? Well, we don't have a good explanation for why the Justice Department isn't releasing it. Critics, I think, would say, look, this doesn't support what President Trump would want, which is that there's some grand conspiracy to wrong him. So the Justice Department is sitting on that. They don't want evidence out there that doesn't support the kind of attacks Trump is making on his political opponents. But there could be more innocuous reasons, too, right? The Justice Department generally doesn't like to take public steps in cases that could have consequences on the election close to the election. Some people think of this as a 60-day rule or a 90-day rule, meaning you're within that time frame of the election. There's no formal rule like that, but tradition just calls not to do that. The Justice Department also generally doesn't comment on investigations either when they're started or when they're ended if there are no charges. Now, this case is a little unusual because the department spokeswoman announced this investigation or this review publicly on Sean Hannity's show. So there's some expectation if you say it's open, you've got to say it closed. And the department hasn't provided us a reason as to why they're not saying anything about the end of it or revealing results. And we do know some of the names of the people they were looking into, people that were making the unmasking request. One of them was former Vice President Joe Biden. This whole thing got started kind of back in May when three Republican senators made public this list of officials who had made unmasking requests. The acting director of intelligence at the time, Rick Grinnell, had declassified that list. And it was a who's who, you know, of top Obama administration officials. The biggest name was obviously former Vice President Biden. There was former White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, Jim Comey, the former FBI director, John Brennan, the former CIA director, James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. So a lot of at least household names, at least here in Washington, that served in the Obama administration. And Republicans in particular highlighted Vice President Biden's name. I think their critics would say for political reasons, they just want to connect him with unmasking, which is the seedy word and suggest wrongdoing. When again, there's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong. It's sort of so routine for government officials to say, who is that? And that practice has continued into the Trump administration. But Biden was a name of people who made unmasking requests. That is in part why Republicans were so interested in this. Well, the report is out now. What has been the reaction and what has been the reaction to your reporting as well? My understanding is President Trump is not happy about this. President Trump is not happy generally that the department is not targeting his political foes. He's been particularly upset at another probe by this guy named John Durham, who's kind of investigating the Russia investigation that so dogged President Trump's campaign. And, you know, this is just another thing that is going to irk him. I have to say some of the reaction to the reporting is people saying, look, this doesn't surprise me at all. I knew all along national security you know, legal analysts saying, well, of course, I knew all along there was nothing wrong with unmasking. And they're really pointing to this bash investigation and saying, look, we always thought this was a political exercise. It would give President Trump something to point to and say, ha, my opponents are under investigation when really it was always destined to kind of lead to this conclusion that, that there wasn't any substantive wrongdoing. Matt Zapatosky, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.